The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Earl Bud Lee is a songwriter and sometimes a live performer. He wrote songs that were recorded by Loretta Lynn, Blake Shelton, Joe Cocker, Mo Bandy, George Strait. But Earl Bud Lee's most successful song. Friends in Low Places was recorded by Garth Brooks, and it's become a country music anthem. So thanks so much for making the time to to join us. How are you doing today? I'm doing just dandy, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Tell us a little bit about your early days. What was the music that you grew up hearing? Well, my mother used to put me to bed with. Bonovani and Henry Mancini and lots and lots of long hair, and then wake me up in the morning with bluegrass, Latin scouts, <laughs> and everything in between. I had earliest influence, what I gravitated toward. I always enjoyed Nat King Cole and Tony Bennett, Hank Sinatra, and such. But my ear really went toward country uh, when I heard uh, Ernest Tubb had a show when I was a child, and then from there, there was a Jimmy Dean show, and from there it was, I do believe, the Everly Brothers. And then it was the Smothers Brothers, with Glenn Campbell, and so forth. I grew up listening to Tudor Clark. I listened to the Beatles. and They took me a little while to get on to, but basically, uh, I grew up listening to all kinds of music, and, and I just love all of it. It is a lot of variety. So what is it about country music in particular that has caused you to gravitate towards it? It was probably the storytelling. Uh, Most of the songs had really good melodies and really strong stories. And probably as a storyteller, I enjoyed that most. And I still enjoy when I'm writing. I like to tell the story. And music, you could say, is is more or less in your blood. It is. It is. It goes all the way back. My uh, my grandfather on both sides of my uh, my daddy's family and my mama's family all were uh, uh, musically inclined. And my father, of course, passed away at the young age of twenty one. He he'd been to a uh, New Year's Eve gig played and, and on his way home hit black ice and spun out and left me a music room which I was pretty much forbidden to go into. They wanted me, my mother especially, they wanted me to get a good education and not, not have music as my main theme and I, I went on to school and and on to college. Music always pulled me and I uh, ended up in Nashville and writing songs about 39 years ago. That's been a long time. It seems like just yesterday. And so much has changed in our landscape around here. The environment is different. But there are still a, a handful of really good country writers who, who really love the old, old-time old storytelling and good melodies. So you're from Ohio originally. Born in uh, Orville, Ohio, the home of Smucker's Jelly. <laughs> the same year Smucker's Jelly was born, I was born. 
and uh, well, was there, you know, probably uh, until I was somewhere around two, and then my mother remarried when I was approaching five, about five years old, and she married a naval officer, so it was off to see the, the world. We did a lot of traveling. A lot of good experience for a young boy, like a Huckleberry Finn type upbringing. Hmm. So tell me when you started to write. Oh, I was noodling around with writing as a child. Little limericks, little poems. I started writing in earnest when I was about 12 and playing guitar. Maybe the instrument I could get my hands on, really, and well, like I said, I, I grew up with music and church and on like that. And I think one one of the first things I remember was I got I'd gotten a B on something I decided that I should have had an A plus on. And when the teacher left the room, I wrote on the board, "Is this all, or is there more?" I think there is, but I can't be sure. Because when I ask, you say I'm poor to know not why, and ask what for. Snake Eyes, son of Shakespeare. Kind of nuts. <laughs> so when you made the decision to go to Nashville, was that something that you were confident about? Yeah. Yep. Secure in my being that that's what I was supposed to do. That was a gift. I continued on working until somewhere around 83 or so. I left the profession I was working at and um, moved over to Christy Lane Music, gave me $50 a week to write songs, and I did that for a while. Then I moved over to Loretta Lynn. Uh, Christy had cut three of my songs, recorded them, named the title of an album, and then uh, Loretta Lynn, of course, recorded one. And, and I moved over from there to Ray Baker, who was producing Mo Bandy and Joe Stampley and Merle Haggard. I'm going to move over there. And from there, I ended up at Sony Tree. Back in the day, it was Tree International. And uh, wrote some songs over there. And then Mary Tyler Moore signed me to her company. And I wrote there for a while. And then I moved from there to Joe Bett Motown. And they closed their doors somewhere around 84 or so. And then 85 maybe and then from there I just pretty much didn't re-sign with anyone pretty much just was independently writing with different companies then I went to work for Willie Nelson and Hank Cochran and Glenn Martin all of them stellar writers and of course Willie being an artist and that was attractive to me so I signed with that company for a couple of years Paul Willie ran into his tax problems and he bailed out of the company so the company pretty much it didn't survive much after that and from there I went to Paris, France and did Buffalo Bill's Wild West so for a number of months and uh, I really missed Music Row in Nashville and my family and all so I came back and basically didn't write a lick for about three years I did read everything I could get my hands on philosophy from the Greeks through the Renaissance, the history of the world, the prehistory, the Bible, 
dream of reason, some of the uh, dancing woolly master about the string theory. And so I just read everything I could get a hold of. And three years later, who are you when I'm not looking fell out? That went on to be recorded by Joe Nichols. And then Joe, I think, went into rehab and trying to straighten his life out somehow or other. And Blake Shelton got wind of it. He recorded it. And he took it to number one. I started my own company back in 2000, and now we have some writers, some artist writers, one of them, Don Pedigo, who is really showing a, a whole lot of um, character and coming forward in a good way, representing music. And he's from the heartland, up in the John Mellencamp area. But he's a wonderful writer. He's someone you should help keep your eyes on, Don Pedigo. Hmm. We just finished up a record on him with Ray Kennedy, who produces Steve Earle, and uh, he's done some work with him. With, well, he just finished up Rodney Crowell, and then we, we co-produced this thing on Don, and now we're real excited about this new project. And and I am so very excited to uh, have this project done so I can get back to writing. Well, why do you write? Well, that's a good question. And that might be as easy to answer as why do you breathe? <laughs> it's just one of those, it's a gift. All of those things I thought I was totally whacked out of my mind at some point, but come to understand that this is good therapy for me. And uh, I'm happy to, happy to be chosen to write these things. I really do believe it's a gift. Uh, we have to look for it, of course, if you don't. You don't read, you don't write. There's really not much to write about if you don't expand the mind. So reading is a real big part of it, right? Uh, like reading, writing, and arithmetic, the things I learned in first grade. I still read a lot, and I still write a lot, and I still do the uh, arithmetic. It all adds up. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, everything's directly proportional to the other, so... So at this point, I'd like I've been in the studio so much, and I I do enjoy all these facets of what I do. But for the most part, writing is where I get my real. Some people find Mount Everest, and I write a song. <laughs> Can you remember the first time you heard a song that you wrote on the radio? Oh yes, I can, and it was um, quite an eye opener. Each time I hear a song on the radio, it's, it's always like Randy Rogers and Allison Krauss recorded a song I wrote called Yonder, Look Out Yonder, they called it. And Yonder got a really huge write-up in the Rolling Stones and gave it the diamond of the record. So I was very pleased with that. And when I heard it on the beatbox, I was just, wow. Just, just every time I hear one of my songs, I'm, I'm just tickled to death and it's still amazing. To uh, to be gifted and have that as one of my gifts, it's, it's quite a. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. It's like every time if you were if you were to actually walk into your living room and see a pot of gold sitting on your coffee table, <laughs> it's it's just one of those feelings. Great surprise. I'm more shocked when I don't get one recorded, or when I get one recorded, than I am when I don't get one recorded. It's a lot of work. We're not as surprised, you know, when someone turns me down. I'm used to that. But when someone actually records it and releases it, 
the odds are really, really high of getting all that done for everything to fall into place. So I should say I'm very, very thankful for those folks out there who love the music. I did do a little research on something once, and it was because Strange in Low Places was a huge record. I lost count somewhere around 25 million records a while back. But I was like all the people in the world, why only 25 million? Not that I wasn't thankful, <laughs> because I was. But then looking at it proportionally, I know 0.1 is 1%. 0.1 of 0.1 is so minuscule and directly proportioned to those people who love music and buy music, directly proportional to those who love music and write music. It's pretty interesting. Hmm. I've read where different writers, for example, the journalist Chuck Klosterman wrote about the song. A lot of people have actually analyzed Friends in Low Places but I would be curious to know, from your perspective, why do you think so many people identify with that song? Well, I think all of us get a, get a case of the, um, I don't know what, how to put it. What is it? I think that that is a situation where either someone would like to tell someone, you know, forget about you. I lay the law down and say, hey, you know, get on with your life. I've got friends. <laughs> and my friends are a rowdy bunch, and we're all going to drink and enjoy ourselves. As opposed to someone who's trying to live the good life and trying to walk the state there all the time. There are, there are a bunch of people who, who just feel footloose and fancy free, and that song is one of those. It's got a hint of freedom to it. Definitely. Who would you say taught you the most about songwriting? Well, I've had I've had a number of tutors. A couple of them you probably wouldn't even know, but you might know their song. Hank Beach gave me metered syllable. Hank wrote, you know, Journey um, to the End of My World. And as an older writer, uh, you lay a whole lot of love on me. Like Sly Twain and Tom Jones and Con Huntley recorded that. He gave me quite a bit. Master Clements, the world-renowned fiddle virtuoso, so he he also gave me quite a bit to spend some time with me. Mickey Newberry spent a lot of time with me. He wrote a lot of big hits. Just checked, dropped in to see what condition my condition is in. And, San Francisco, Mabel, just a ton of songs. We became good friends. Roger Miller gave me some coins. Dwayne Blackwell, I would probably have to say, Dwayne Blackwell, I'm Mr. Blues. Throw your arms on this song. You can't, man, make my day. I'm going to hire a wino. He probably, he and I wrote together for a, a number of years, and I had to uh, conform to his formulas. And through that, I think that really routed me off to the place where Dwayne and I didn't uh, really have the need to write with each other. Not that he ever needed to write with anyone because he wrote a lot by himself. But he took a liking to me and we we wrote a few songs together over the years and he was a big influence. For the listeners out there, Dwayne Blackwell is the man that you co-wrote Friends in Low Places with. I'm curious about mm -hmm. how you met him 
and what your first impression of him was. I met him in the parking lot of our church, and um, my first impression was like, well, we've got a new friend that moved in from California and wants to stay in touch, so he did. And I took him around and introduced him to everyone I knew here in Nashville. I think that's how he met Bob Doyle. I introduced him to Bob. And Bob in turn brought Garth over and introduced Garth to us. And then Dwayne called and, and got back to sing the demo for Friends in Low Places. Uh, he'd sang a number of demos for us. And he had recorded a number of Dwayne songs. We didn't record any of mine at Dwayne. We had playing hooky from church, and we went to, uh, I guess it was one of these chain restaurants that served, served champagne brunch. And we went there and started drinking champagne, and we were chicken tenders and trying to outdo each other on who could make the best hot sauce concoction for the chicken tenders. And I think it was about a bottle in of, of his champagne. I rolled on a ball napkin, blended it all on my reach. I showed up a boots and ruined your black tie affair. And we just passed passed that thing back and forth until the song was nearly complete. And then we went over to the Americana where he was living. We put it down, picked up a guitar, and then the melody was there. And we put that down, and then we called Garth, and Garth came in and sang the demo for us. And, oh, it just got bigger and bigger from there. What is Dwayne Blackwell like? He's a jolly... This is kind of a, a strange way of putting it, but he's a jolly Tabudgeon. <laughs> he's like a W.C. Fields. Very intelligent, very sharp, very witty, very business. Calls a spade a spade, state shooter. And he was, he was certainly a big influence on my life. Hmm. And what about Garth Brooks? When you first met him, what were your thoughts? Was there any inkling that he would be this incredible star? Oh, well, he uh, he came uh, to, when we were at Motown, he came, uh, he and his wife at the time, Sandy, came uh, over to the office, and he came in and he into my office and he sat down and played a few songs. I thought he was a very polite, quiet, soft-spoken young man who was, you know, trying his level best to get something going. He was working for, I think he was working for the boot bar, and I'm not sure if that was the one, but he was selling boots. He was a custodian at the uh, local church out where he lived, so he was cleaning, you know. He was was doing everything he could just to stay here and get it done. Time passed, and he ended up... uh, well, singing demos for me and singing demos for a lot of people in town. And I think when he uh, recorded a song of mine, if there's anything wrong with her, it's me. And that was the first time I actually saw him explain a song and with full expression from the control room, I could see into the vocal booth and I could see his facial expressions change as he was singing, and that was when I realized that this kid's going to do it. Wow. Tell me, do you ever envision making an album of yourself, an Earl Bud Lee album? Well, there's been a lot of talk about it. I almost did it last 
career, but uh, I was talked into letting a songwriter artist take that spot and do a real good job on him. And yeah, I've got I've got some folks interested in doing a master series on the end, and I look forward to doing something like that. You know, sometimes we want something to happen and want it to happen now. I'm looking back. I'm happy that I didn't go in and do the record then because I've written some more since then and, there are some, and I've gone into the past and dug up some songs that I had thought might might uh, work for this uh, record and in fact they do. So I've got a, got a little plan going right now as far as what's going to make it on the record. Do you think that there are any misconceptions about you? Any misconceptions about Earl Budley? Well, <laughs> if I spent my time worrying about that, I would uh, be shooting myself in the foot, wouldn't I? <laughs> That's true. There's a lot. There's going to be all of us. There's going to be in our business. There's going to be people who are going to be standoffish. As the progression goes along, after writing, you know, if you have if you have a number a number of number one hits, then there's going to be some jealousy that comes up with those who were right along with but never did get that hit, and they seem to fall back and fall back further, and we keep going forward. And then the folks who want to write with me have, well, I'll say it was Roger Cook. Roger Cook. The long, cool woman in a black dress. Well, here comes that rainy day feeling again. If I could teach the world to sing all the way up to I want to dance with you, had a hit on the straight part. And Don Williams, I believe in love. So many big world pop hits. Uh, and he became my, my partner for a long, long while. We wrote, and Roger was always very encouraging. And he and I still stay up with each other. We still write together. He, that was on a good note. Now then, on a, on another note, there are some people who get jealous of of me spending time with Roger, and there are people who get jealous of Roger spending time with me. And it just seems to be um, well, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. it, it there's always going to be someone who is gunning for that one position. And there's a certain attitude that goes with them. There's a bunch of young gunslingers out there right now who, who would just love and believe in their heart that they will, and they probably will make it. But I really don't have a whole lot of time to co-write anymore. And I really enjoy writing by my, you know, picking up an idea and a title that I know is a hit worthy and writing it myself. Hmm. Well, how do you view Nashville? Oh, well, Nashville is a, uh, it's where, to me, that's where the, the music is. I mean, we have the biggest fools on the planet move here, and the most brilliant people on the planet move here, and after a few cocktails, it's hard to tell who the most brilliant and the biggest fool is. <laughs> uh, it's just a great, just a great place to, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of respect after 39 years. I mean, I mean, we we all have stories, and uh, I guess a lot of folks who take credit for raising me, and another bunch of folks who, in the beginning, didn't really support me, would say that they always knew I was going to make it, and 
the landscape has changed a lot. The beauty of this place is I can walk to any of the labels. Everything's close. It's a real strong songwriting community. Uh, the business side of things gets a little hairy every now and then, but as far as the writing of the songs and the love of music, there's a bunch of us out there. Uh, and we're enjoying uh, you know, this this part of my life. I, I have the uh, freedom that I haven't had before to do things for others that I've always wanted to do and to get involved in some causes. I've got plenty of those. Plenty of them out there. Wounded warriors. Of course, always support the veterans. And St. Jude's, always support the children. And sometimes uh, I'll save a little bit for me and go out to dinner with my wife and, and enjoy an evening with someone who really loves me. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about how you met your wife. Well, she, uh, she owned a label in Kentucky label X and uh, they had a a few artists signed to that and her business partner lived across the street from me and her business partner's husband and I James House he wrote Broken Wing I ain't that lonely yet he was an artist for a long while I suppose still is and he and I were uh, writing so I could show up in that living room Every other day, and one day I went in there, and, and my wife was standing there and, uh, in the uh, foyer, and we just looked at each other for, you know, it seemed like forever, and I walked by her and went out back and smoked a cigarette. She told me she went out on the front porch and sat on a rocker and was like, oh, my God. And we both had pretty much the same feeling, and I ran. I ran off to Beverly Hills, and I eventually did come back, and We've been together ever since. Hmm. What makes you all a good match? Makes us a good match? Yeah. Well, she's intelligent. She's beautiful. She has love and family, which is really big. She loves animals and she loves children. And uh, she's more of a psychologist and more of a case study. <laughs> So we, we we actually get out and we walk. You know, there's a lake here called Radnor Lake, and we we try to walk that every day and set our heads straight and uh, be thankful for what we have, thankful for this wonderful life that we both love music. We both understand it. We argue like cats and dogs over some things, and then the long. Terms, oh, those are those are just matter of taste. They're just some things that are subjective, and they don't last long. It's it's one of those. If we fell in love, automatic. And, and as I got to know her, you know, I was always saying that you know, I've never found love in a bar, and I've never found love at church. But I found love in my partner's living room for sure. <laughs> Some good old girls in there. We met each other organically like that. Then we worked together, and eventually moved to Nashville. And we we've been together for well almost uh, fifteen years now. Hmm. Almost every single article that mentions you mentions her as well. Well, good. <laughs> well, speaking of the word "well." 
I wanted to ask you about your well of inspiration. What would you say the greatest well of your inspiration is? How do you fill that up? Well, one is living. Getting into as much as I can get into. I always have been. I had my first job. I was eight years old, making 10 cents an hour, cleaning up a junk job. The work ethic's always been there. And, of course, I got on more jobs and more jobs and met more people. I'm a people person. And through all, all of those years, I was just always attracted to new ideas, bohemian type of, you know, people who really have a different way of looking at things. I needed to know for myself how things work and I got out in the world. And I always do go back to nature. Which, you know, is one of those calming uh, effects on uh, a restless spirit. And it really grounds me. Uh, the idea of reading, I, I started reading at an early age. My grandfather was a uh, history teacher, and my grandmother was a math teacher. And, well, they had a big library, and I started reading really early. And, you know, getting into that fantasy last of Mohicans, I think, was a book that I was reading in the second grade. And uh, from there, it has always been about keeping that well full. I mean, you can live, you can go, 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 and then, then you're, you know, you're gasping and you're on empty. And then that's time to take a break from the whole thing and, I think Roger Miller put it the best. Sometimes you just have to turn around and look out the window. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, reading, like I said earlier on, a lot of reading. I try not to read fiction because I have enough of that going on in my life without pursuing it. <laughs> it's like pursuing trivial pursuit. I think the uh, as much knowledge as I can put in and things make sense. I just finished the book on... Uh, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Tyson. It's a wonderful book and highly recommend anyone who wants to see how the whole thing ticks, read it. Wonderful book. Hmm. It will fill the well up and then some. <laughs> a lot of songwriters, they have their songs that everybody know, everybody knows, but then they maybe have a song that they think this one really should have caught on. Somebody should have cut it, or it was cut, it should have gotten more attention. What would that song be for you? Hmm. Well, that'd be a tough one. I've got a lot of them that haven't been recorded, but going along with that, there's a lot of them that haven't been recorded because no one's ever heard them. I hadn't played them for anyone. I guess there was, well, one single back in the day when Karen comes around with the title, and it was a disappointment uh, because it went into the 40s, and then one of the label artists was complaining because the act was getting all the attention. So I dropped that one and went on supporting her. And that was one way it can be done. Another one was T.G. Shepard recorded a, a song, and it was going to be on Friday. It was going to be released on Monday, and Monday rolled around, and they canned the entire project, and he moved to a different producer. So it was like a song called Let's Do It Again, and that one I really, really feel bad about because the dirt band, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, they found me at a place called the Tavern on the Row and told me that 
they were recording my song and it was up next after the loon's break. And I told them, well, uh, man, I've already, I've given it to T.G. Shepard. Well, they were thankful. Thank you so much. We didn't record it and they didn't. Glenn Campbell didn't get to record it and the dirt band didn't get to record it. T.G. Shepard did record it, but it didn't get released. So let's do it again. What's the title of it? And on the other side of the coin, who has done the best job of interpreting an Earl Bud Lee song? Well, you're asking me who my favorite singer who's recorded. Are you saying someone who's recorded one of my songs? Or When you look at the different recordings that have been made, which one would you say, wow, this artist or this band, they really got it. This is a good interpretation of this song that I wrote. Well, I, I, I'll tell you what, I, I would have to say Garth Brooks. Hmm. Because when Garth came in and sang the demo, bear in mind the song is different. I write so many different types of music. But the dem- Garth came in and sang the demo. We only had a trio. We had uh, Steve Turner, who was drummer at Midnight Special and drum still for Dolly Parton. Larry Paxton, who did Monster Mash and played bass for uh, a lot of big records. Oh, and uh, John Beeland, who was one of the Stone Ponies and the Ronsacks band, and then ended up being one of the Flying Burrito Brothers. And we had those folks in the studio, and they, and Garth, of course, singing it. So it was a trio, and, and Garth singing. And so when Garth took it in, he didn't take the demo into his producer, Alan Reynolds. He went in and played the guitar, and he said, this is the way we're going to do it. So comparing what I did in the studio, what Garth, how Garth did it in the studio, compared to the big live shebang that he put on the thing, I'd have to say he, it, that was really a surprise. I remember I was driving by the post office out in Mount Juliet, headed over to an award show. And uh, friends came on, and you'd ask me, what does it feel like? And I had to pull into the uh, post office parking lot and just soak it up. It was wonderful. Hmm. Well, what is the best thing about this existence as Earl Bud Lee? What is the best thing about being you? Love. Lots and lots of love. I love a lot. It's really, uh, and being respected. Having having so many friends, and just hanging in there, talking to my friends. I call my friends. I have folks I, I love so much I don't get to see every day. And I, I stay in touch with folks. But the best thing about being me is me. Hmm. I, just, I just love life. What's coming up on the horizon for Earl Budley? Well, immediately... I've got uh, shows that I'm going to do that I'm looking forward to doing. And I, I'd love to tell you who they are. They're huge. But I don't really talk about those things until I've got the contracts in hand and it's all done like that. I've got a Tin Pan Alley group together. We're going to play here on the April 3rd, I believe, uh, in Nashville. And uh, I've got a bunch of things going on. I have so many so many, uh, my plate is almost full. I looked at this uh, definition of responsible, 
And the definition of responsible is the ability to respond. <laughs> so I am just about at that place where I, I, I'm actually cleaning the plate now. I want to finish everything that's on there and then uh, get back to my everyday of riding and traveling. Well, as we close here, I want to give you the stage, give you the microphone. We just never know who's listening in this day. What would you say to anyone who's listening in? Uh, any particular? <laughs> totally open-ended. Totally open-ended. Rule number one. It's not my plan. Rule number two, patience. Rule number three, keep the faith. Rule number four, good always wins. And maybe not in my lifetime, but as long as my intentions are good and I'm projecting that good positive energy, good always eventually wins and does even better than I could have dreamed. <laughs> That's great. Thank you very much. Well, I have to say thank you, sir. You're a very interesting character. I appreciate those questions, and I hope uh, your listeners enjoyed this. I know they will, and I, I have one more question. All right. How would you define Earl Budley? Who is Earl Budley? Well, I would probably have to say it's not a matter of who he is. It's a matter of plot. <laughs> And I am one loyal, energetic, happy person. Hmm. Pretty simple. You know, I keep things as simple. I mean, I'm really uh, complex. Very complex. I love to think that I'm a great writer, though, and that's all I ever wanted to be. Well, thank you very much for the songs. Thank you. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Thank you so very much. I, I appreciate the time I spend. Please stay in touch. Absolutely. Until next time. <laughs> Until next time. Happy trails. Happy trails to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>